Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Cameron Ellis. Cameron is an assistant professor in the psychology department at Stanford University, where he leads the scaffolding of cognition team. Cameron's research focuses on understanding the infrastructure of human cognition and how it's constructed during infancy. In other words, what is it like to be an infant? To study this, Cameron and his team use neuroscience and cognitive science methods such as fMRI. In this episode, Cameron discusses his research in studying infants' memory and attention, how he overcame the challenges when doing infant fMRI, and directions for his newly formed lab at Stanford. Later on, Cameron shared personal stories about his background and journey in academia. So, without further ado, here's the conversation. Cameron, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. First and foremost, I'd like to welcome you to the Stanford Psychology Department as an assistant professor.、Um, it's really exciting to hear about your research today. Yeah, thanks, Bella. It's really great to be on the podcast. I'm looking forward to chatting more, and I'm loving it here. It's, it's Stanford's a really nice place, and I've been pleasantly surprised by everything. Yeah, that's glad to hear that. All right. So to get us started,、um, first I'm going to ask you、um, a really basic question. So, what are some of the topics that you and your lab study?、Um, and I know you just started your lab here. So, any future directions or plans you have for your lab would be great. Yeah. So, as a scientist, I'm broadly interested in understanding perception, attention, control, learning, and memory. Those are really broad topics that pertain to kind of like half of the semester of cognitive psychology. And、uh, one of the really exciting things about my research program is that I actually feel like I can kind of tackle all of them by investigating infants. And the reason why is that infancy is a time where all of these different systems are developing and emerging and changing all at once. And so it's not easily easy or even maybe possible to just try and study one of them in isolation. I, I think we as scientists are going to make a lot more progress. By considering these as interacting forms of processes, forms of systems that the infant is recruiting, and we'll get a lot more progress by by treating them as interacting and by trying to study them kind of all at once. So,、uh, in my research in the past, and also where I'm looking into the future, is to continue to explore the nature and kind of mechanisms that infants have for、uh, supporting their perception, attention, learning, and memory. So、uh, to be a little bit more concrete,、uh, some big questions that I'm really interested in pursuing in my research pertain to what is the nature of a memory system that infants have, and how does that change over the course of development? So, for instance, most people, including myself, don't have any memories from any age before about three and a half years of old.、Right. Yet, if you talk to an infant or even a toddler, so say a two-year-old. They can report memories. They might remember what happened three months ago. They might have very、uh, detailed information about past、mm-hmm. experience. And moreover, they're learning a ton about the world. They're learning about the people in the world in terms of like who is their parents, who are their social others, who are their、um, friends. They're also learning about their motor skills, and they're just generally learning about language as well, which is seen as one of the biggest achievements of of development. So they're learning a lot. They've got some types of memories that they have, yet those memories do not persist into adulthood or even childhood. So there's something different and unique about the nature of their learning and memory system that I'm really fascinated in uncovering in my research program.、Mm-hmm. Another big topic I'm really interested in is the nature of control that infants have. So to what extent do infants have an ability to control and organize their perceptual resources? In order to facilitate processing, now this is typically、uh, kind of operationalized as attention, and I am interested in attention, but just more generally how control systems work in the developing brain. The traditional view is that infants are kind of passive sponges that just absorb the world. I think we're now starting to see a lot of evidence against that idea that actually infants are actively engaging in their world and curating their perceptual experiences in order to facilitate learning. 
But to be able to do so implies that they have some sophisticated sorts of control systems that allow them to delegate resources, to organize and motivate and, and, and kind of delegate uh, functioning in different sensory systems. And what exactly is the nature and kind of those uh, control systems is largely unknown. And that's a big question that I'm interested in pursuing over these next few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So about the um, memory study you were mentioning, why infants don't have any memory um, of their infancy once they become toddlers or like later in childhood. Do you have any theories on that or have you done any studies on that? That's super interesting. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of really great work coming from the animal literature mainly that have tried to explain kind of a neural mechanism that could account for uh, the change in the structure of memory systems that can support, that can come online to support uh, the long-term storage of memories. The type of memories in particular that uh, is kind of like where the high stakes um, research is on is on episodic memory. So memories Mm -hmm. about uh, detailed events that happen to yourself where kind of these are situated in space and time and involve some richness in their Mm -hmm. recall. And so uh, research on animal models, in particular mice and rat models, has looked at the memory system, in particular the hippocampus, and how that's changing over the uh, postnatal period in the in the time where you can kind of map it on in mice into uh, child's uh, infancy in humans, and looked at what is changing in the hippocampus. And there's lots of different accounts of, of what's going on, and I think this is a really uh, rich literature that uh, continues to be really inspiring. One account is that what's changing is that there's kind of like a, a wholesale turnover of the neurons in the part of the mm-hmm. hippocampus that uh, basically erases the the kinds of memories that were there beforehand. Uh, another account suggests that the system that is allowing the storage of these memories long term isn't yet in place in infancy and only emerges in its full sophistication uh, uh, towards like uh, a few years after birth. And I'm vague about a few years because the mapping between animal models and human models is very difficult at this point. Right. And so the those are kind of uh where generally the the kind of question marks exist or sorry those are the potential hypotheses that uh exist for how this could be happening in humans sorts of challenges with doing this work in animal models so for instance the way that they're assessing memory is very different than the way that would be assessing memory they typically use a conditioned place preference which simply just means terrifying an animal in a certain environment and seeing whether it remembers that environment as being scary mm-hmm. uh well sorry associated with a shock. We can't initially infer their fear or not. Uh, that's a different type of memory than what we want to ask about in terms of episodic right. memory. It, it's certainly related, and I think we learn a lot by studying that, but it's not kind of the introspective experience that episodic memory may be referring to. And so that's one challenge. The other challenge is that just necessarily we need to kind of know the answer in humans to know the answer in humans. We can't just full sail rely on animal models to tell us exactly what's going on in the human mind. So uh, some research that I've done in this space looked at uh, the functioning of the hippocampus in infancy. So uh, I mentioned before that the hippocampus and these animal models are thought to be a really critical component to the kind of storage of long-term memories. And one uh, kind of question mark was, is the hippocampus functional in any capacity? Is it the case that the infant hippocampus is doing anything related to learning or memory um, during those first few years of life? Or does it kind of only come online once uh, episodic memories or the ability to store these kinds of information um, uh, uh, appear behaviorally. And what we found is that using a learning task, which involves the storage of sequential information or the the learning of sequential information, specifically a statistical learning task, I can explain a little bit more, we found that the hippocampus was activated for this kind of learning and specifically was only activated once there had been sufficient amount of t- exposure in order for the infants to show evidence of learning. So this suggests that the hippocampus is involved in learning in infants. These were infants ranging in age from three months to 24 months of age. We found it in our youngest sample, youngest infants in the sample, suggesting that the hippocampus at a very young age is involved in learning. But the question marks that arise from this uh, study, uh, well, that's one type of learning. It has nothing to do with episodic memory. 
is the hippocampus involved in episodic memory? And that's a active line of investigation that uh, I'll be pursuing in the future, as well as there are a couple of studies underway in my former lab where they're also currently pursuing that. Mm-hmm. That's very fascinating. But for pre-verbal infants, I can imagine it would be really hard to study, especially episodic memory. How would you go about testing that? Yeah. Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about um, some work that uh, Tristan Yates in my former lab has uh, mainly mm-hmm. spearheaded. We are, for instance, uh, what you can do is a, a subsequent memory task. Uh, this is a task that's often used in the adult fMRI literature, but we uh, created a version of it that was suitable for infants. The idea is that you show them images. Hopefully they're interesting, exciting, uh, and ultimately you'll be encoded by the infants. And then you uh, later, after, in this case, a 45-second delay, show them that image again, paired with a, a lure, so a similar image that's otherwise unseen, and so it's a novel item. And what we want to evaluate is the... Um, evidence of uh, bias in looking time such that there would be sign that they remember encoding that item. And so what we can do is then take the, the, the items that we see evidence that like they seem to remember or have encoded witnessing or uh, uh, seeing that item previously, and then say, okay, that was an encoded trial. They encoded that item and compare that to other trials where there wasn't evidence of encoding. They didn't show that bias and see whether there's differential activation, particularly in the hippocampus, for those encoded versus non-encoded trials. And those results are hopefully uh, going to be presented very soon. But that's one way in which you can get to it. But you'll understand that that's just part of what we mean by episodic memory. Again, that's not like kind of, kind of like richness right. that is associated with, the again, the experiential uh, components of reliving a moment. To understand this big question, you're going to have to do lots of different types of tasks that will get at that. So, for instance, other things you'll need to investigate is how information is relationally bound in in memory. One of the key aspects of episodic memory is that information is bound coherently. So it's like it's not that you remember the time, but you don't remember carefully like who was there or what place it was in. Most of our episodic mm-hmm. memories bind the, those details of who, what, where, and when all together. And Mm-hmm. To what extent infants have those kinds of relationally bound memories? That's another big question. And how the brain systems support that is another big question. Mm-hmm. So the study you mentioned, Tristan's study, that was done using MRI techniques? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm also curious, what inspired you to study the brain? I, I know you touched on why you wanted to study infants, uh, but why their brains? Yeah. So I came to this uh, topic kind of uh, non-traditionally. So my undergraduate degree uh, and the research I did on the side during my undergraduate degree was kind of all over the place. But vaguely, if you squinted, it looked like I was doing um, psychophysics and particularly vision science. Um, Mm -hmm. I I didn't do any developmental research uh, until I I started on on this infant fMRI uh, project. I had interests that were very broad, but generally uh, were questions that could be answered with um, behavior. The the thing that really drew me into studying the brain was infants. In particular, I was attracted to the idea that one way we can make traction in understanding the infant mind that's perhaps better or at least different than how we've previously made traction is by using neuroimaging. And so, The idea is that infants are really interesting. We love to interact with them and are just an important thing for us as psychologists to understand. But they're very difficult to study because, among other things, they have a very limited behavior repertoire. that has very poor uh, linking functions to their internal cognitive states. So, for instance, one of the most traditional mainstream probably uh, 70% of infant research that is using behavior, uh, probably 70% of it will look at their gaze. And uh, in particular, where it is that infants are looking or kind of like whether they've stopped looking at something. Mm-hmm. Those, right. those kinds of two, two metrics. That has allowed us to discover a wealth of information. It's incredibly impressive. And uh, we we know a lot because of it. However, mm-hmm. we also, as developmental psychologists, know how limited that is because there are many factors that drive infant gaze that may be completely irrelevant to our experimental protocol. And great experiments will try and control for as many of those as possible, but it's mm-hmm. still difficult to set up experiments that allow us to carefully demarcate cognitive processes 
with this behavior. Right. What I thought might be a really interesting avenue to pursue is whether we can get a new route in to understand infant cognition by using uh, neuroimaging technology. So, for instance, in the statistical learning task that I described before, the, the kind of learning learning task I mentioned earlier, there was actually no explicit behavior that the infants were showing. Uh, we didn't require that they show evidence of statistical learning. Instead, we inferred that they must have been doing statistical learning based purely on their brain activity, because otherwise there's no reasonable accounting of the results that there should be this kind of learning signature in their brain. And mm-hmm. so that's another way that we can say, like, they are showing evidence of learning while doing fMRI. Now, I do want to put a caveat is that it's hard to do fMRI. It was very expensive in a kind of, like, important sense in the, in the idea that, like, it, it costs a lot of money to run these studies. Yeah. And we are spending a lot of time to do it. If I wanted to know, do infants do statistical learning, it would be better for me to run the behavioral study that would show that. However, if we can alternatively ask these kinds of questions while at the same time getting at the mechanism as in like how the brain supports that type of cognitive process. I think we get these uh, kind of like flow on benefits of doing this work that hopefully uh, enhance our understanding of infant cognition and cognition more generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And and you mentioned that doing fMRI is really challenging, uh, which I agree. And then I feel like doing fMRI with infants is especially challenging so um, what are some of the challenges that you've run into while doing infant MRI? Yeah, so so a little bit of background um, that I think is really important to emphasize is that people have been doing um, MRI and fMRI. So fMRI is about brain function rather than brain structure. People have been doing fMRI with infants for almost three decades now. It's uh, almost as soon as people were doing fMRI with adults, it was only five or 10 years later that they were doing fMRI with infants. The reason is that it's completely safe to do fMRI with infants. There's no reason to be worried about it beyond the normal safety protocols that would undertake with adults. And so people have been able to do this for a long time. However, there's a critical problem, which is that fMRI is a technology in which you have to take a picture of a brain effectively. And just like any picture that you're taking, when you move while that picture is being taken, it gets blurry. Infants cannot be told to stay still. We cannot instruct them to do that. And we can't uh, confine them to do that, both because it would be unethical and also it would ultimately make them very unhappy if they were constrained enough that they couldn't move their head. Mm -hmm. And so the only way that most people have been able to do fMRI research with infants is while they're either sedated or sleeping. And this has been true for probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of studies that have been done over the last three decades, where people have studied infants while they're sleeping or sedated. Now, more recently, only sleeping. Most studies don't need to sedate infants, but a lot of the early studies did. And so very little research has been done on infants while they're awake and behaving. And that's actually where my research came in, is that we started with hoping to develop new methods, develop a new approach that would make it easier to conduct fMRI with awake behaving infants. And I think we're relatively successful in doing so. And I'm, I think a lot of the studies that uh, we published uh, uh, show evidence that like you can now do this kind of work. But in order to get from... Uh, the place where it was very, um, it, it seemed impossible to do uh, fMRI with awake infants uh, to now where it seemingly works and I actually think is relatively easy to do. Uh, there was hundreds, maybe thousands of challenges that need to be overcome. Yeah. Uh, we took a kind of unique approach when um, trying to solve the problems that we're facing, which was to kind of as much as we could disregard certain dogma around uh, the way that scanning ought to be done. So, for instance, I'll give you one example. When you go into an fMRI machine as a, at, to get a brain scan, what you'll mm-hmm. have is a is, um, coil put on your head. And the coil, it kind of is like a bird cage. It's often called a bird cage, where there are elements that are behind your head that you can't see, but then there's elements put over your face that you can see. And often that obstructs your view and otherwise feels confining. We thought that that would be very unpleasant for an infant in the sense that they would feel constrained. They would have Mm -hmm. an impaired view of everything around them, in particular the screen in which we're wanting to show them stimuli. And they could hurt themselves by hitting, leaning forward and hitting hitting their head on it. And so what we wanted to do was see alternatives there. And the alternative that was most available to us was to run the scanner without the top of the head coil on. And we didn't know whether that would work. We talked to an MRI physicist who said 
that will not work. The scanner will not turn on. And we tried it anyway, and it did work. As in, we able to actually run the scanner. And not only were we able to run the scanner, is that we found very little compromise in terms of the data quality that we're getting by only using the back of the head coil, not using the front of the head coil. The reason why it worked is because infant heads are much smaller, and so they kind of fit inside the bottom of the head coil better than adults' head would. So that was an example of a case where we just kind of ignored the um, the well the MRI physicist in this case, but uh, perhaps the kind of like shared wisdom. There were other challenges that we faced in terms of okay, well now we don't have the top of the head coil, but how are we going to show infants' images? We had to rethink a new display system in which we uh, had complicated set of mirrors that allowed us to project directly onto the surface of the bore, uh, and this was another kind of challenge that we had to overcome, which was when you do the complicated mirror projection system that we had onto a curved surface, you get a ton of distortions to the image that we mm. want to get rid of and when we're showing to infants because we don't want everything to be curvy or stretched uh, as, as they kind of appear out of, out of the box with this mirror system. And so what we uh, did was we spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. We actually asked a, a, a physicist who specializes in optics who gave us some suggestions, who was completely wrong, again, which was an interesting case where a person who should know this uh, turned out to be completely uh, misleading. That led to a long rabbit hole. But ultimately, we found a solution that worked really well and, and allowed us to succeed there. I guess um, going forward, now that we've kind of jumped over the hurdles that I think uh, really make this work challenging, and I should say that other people have now adopted the methods that we developed as well as that had been developed in the field of awake infant fMRI and have now had great success in running this research kind of independently. But I guess um, we've got some big challenges going forward. One of the challenges is how do we compare infants to one another and to adults? And this is a, a, a challenge that's true both in awake infant fMRI and the sleeping infant fMRI in the sense that we want to have our data in a common space where we can say this region of the brain is activated uh, differentially between the groups or that different regions of the brain were recruited. In order to get to that point, we have to have systems, or we have to have kind of like a template in which we can map our infant data into that template space and adult data into that template, mm -hmm. template space. What is that right template? That's an ongoing discussion for this field that we still haven't figured out. Other right. topics, um, other big challenges for this work is that we are able to do um, fMRI with infants and we can collect data, but the data is not as high quality as a, as a young adult who's sitting in the scanner, not moving or otherwise not moving much. What are the limits to the kinds of questions we can ask with the amount of motion in particular, but the amount of like low data quality that we get with infants relative to what we might be able to ask with adults? We don't yet know the limit. There's one limit we kind of know about, which is like how long the studies can be. It's very hard to run a study longer than 10 minutes of time. Just infants are going to get bored. You're unlikely to have success. But more generally, kind of how far can we push the types of tasks we're running with infants? That's a big question. And ultimately, we won't be able to ask all the questions we might want to ask just because the technology is kind of hard to hard to have the infants um engaged in for long periods of time, or maybe the motion or other forms of noise are too large for answering the kinds of questions we want to ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have, um, I actually have two follow-up questions for you. So the first one is kind of too detailed, maybe for the audience, but I was wondering, um, since the scanner, it's really noisy, and then the usually the babies will get startled, or they wake up, uh, I mean, for your case, they are awake to begin with, um, but do you find them crying a lot while they're looking um, or doing the task, looking at the screen? Yeah, so I guess uh, implied in that question or stated in that question is the idea that infants startle to the noise. What we have found, when, sorry, the, the scanning, the fMRI machine uh, has this baseline kind of noise that's just due to a pump that's keeping the, the system cool. But in addition to that, when you run a sequence, which means that you're trying to acquire brain images, mm -hmm. uh, Loud sounds occur because the magnets inside, the, the coils inside the machine are moving and that movement makes mechanical noise. That's very, very audible, very loud. Uh, those noises do not upset the infants. In almost 250 scans that I have run and like been present for, I don't know if I've ever seen one where the infants seem to get startled in a way that like upset them uh, when the scans turned on. 
I, I really can't think of a single case. And often, much more often, what happens is the infant might be like wriggling around a little bit, a little bit fussy. And then we start the scanner and they just zone in. They just get super calm and they just become focused. And that is remarkable, convenient feature of, of the loud noises that they're being exposed to. So, yeah. That's so interesting. I definitely did not expect that. I would yeah. imagine them crying, being upset in the scanner because they're, they can't really move. And then there's a loud noise going on. Yeah, really... not to say that they uh, they don't ever get upset in the scanner. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to imply that. Infants do get fussy. They get bored of what we're showing them. They feel separation anxiety. There's variability in terms of kind of like the comfort level of the infant in the mm -hmm. scanner. And the way that we run the scans, it's to accommodate that kind of fussiness or, or variability in fussiness, which means that we'll stop and start the scan as needed. If the infant does a block of the experiment and then has to stop, we'll stop the scanner them out, calm them down, and then restart once they're happy again. We don't want infants to be unhappy, and so we are trying to make it so that it's as comfortable, as enjoyable as possible. The one um, uh, useful, interesting thing to know is that uh, infants will tell you when they're bored, and so you very much know when you have to change the experiment, and often if they're bored and you change the experiment, they'll stop being bored, they'll stop being fussy, and, and zone back in. Wow, that's Really interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So now we've talked a lot about challenges. Let's look on the bright side. And so what are some of the most surprising thing or rewarding thing that you discovered about infants on, in your research? Yeah, I, I feel very lucky to be working in a space where I'm always surprised and often wrong. I think that's probably the fun, most fun thing as a scientist is to kind of make predictions and be wrong. Obviously, there's a sense in which we want to make sure that our hypotheses are theory based. But what's really exciting is when you kind of have uh, a range of possibilities and your biases to predict one and ultimately uh, you're wrong. I think that's that's really an enjoyable experience for me as a scientist. Um, one example of where I was wrong was uh, retinotopy. And this is a kind of niche topic that uh, I'm going to explain very briefly, but more generally, and why I find it really interesting and, and the results really surprising. So retinotopy is the idea that information in the world is projected onto your retina, and that means that uh, items or information that's adjacent in space is adjacent on your retina, as in like the points of light uh, that are coding for similar space are adjacent to each other on their projection in the retina. And then that gets uh, taken in through the retina, percolated through the thalamus, and then ultimately to the early visual system. In particular, primary visual cortex is one of the uh, is the one of the places that we're looking at. And what's interesting is that retinotopy is the idea that uh, the spatial spatiotopic uh, structure in the retina is preserved in the visual cortex, so that items presented close to each other on the retina or close to each other in space in the real world are represented close to each other in the visual cortex. And we pursued a topic. We were wanting to understand whether that kind of retinotopic organization is present in the infant brain. There's really beautiful animal work to suggest that that would be the case. There are some caveats that mean that maybe that's uh, certain uh, evidence of retinotopic information, particularly past the earliest layers of the visual cortex, wouldn't be present. So it's like you might find it at the early visual cortex, but just a step Beyond that, maybe you wouldn't find evidence of that. But th that's not what was particularly surprising. Oh, sorry. Uh, I should say that we found evidence of retinotopy in infants uh, as young as um, five months of age in this example. Mm -hmm. That is cool. That's really great that we were able to find uh, retinotopy in those infants and that we found evidence that that retinotopic organization was present um, both at the kind of earliest layers of visual cortex, but also kind of in the mid layers of visual cortex. That's really nice that we found that. But the thing that was surprising to me is that we, with only a few minutes of data, were able to collect individual specific maps of infant visual cortex. These retinotopic maps aren't found at the group level, and we're not averaging across a bunch of infants to find these maps. We're finding it within participants. And we didn't just find it in like a couple of infants. We found it in basically every single infant that we tested in this study. And we used extremely liberal criteria to include participants because we didn't want to 
say that we're excluding infants only who have really great data. We actually include any infant that had any data that would allow us to ask this kind of question. Mm-hmm. And so that to me was really surprising. I thought they would have to work very hard to find evidence of these retinotopic maps that would only find them in the infants that give us like 10 minutes of data. That was not the case. And that was joyous in the sense that, great, we found this evidence and we didn't have to work too hard for it. But it, it was really surprising to me that this technology that kind of seems impossible, it seems impossible to collect fMRI data from awake infants, despite all the challenges and all the work we had to do to get to that point, the mm-hmm. ultimate outcome was that we are able to, at an individual participant level, find their visual maps for very young infants, as young as five months of age. That was mm-hmm. very surprising to me. It was gratifying as a scientist because it meant that, like, the technology I'm working with actually can discover real uh, expected <laughs> facts about the infant brain. Uh, and it really kind of felt motivating and kind of uh, 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 gratifying for my r- research program. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's very high risk, but also high reward. Yeah, it worked. It worked out at the end. Um, so also, I just remembered I earlier about the challenges. I had two follow up questions and I only asked one. <laughs> so my second question was, um, do you feel like the challenges uh, maybe in the neuroscience field as, as a whole is that there isn't like a unified way of doing data pre-processing or data analysis or the tools that we're using in different labs are sometimes different from each other. Do you think that could be a factor that plays into the challenges? Yeah. So this is a a kind of interesting question to ask because when I was uh, setting up the pre-processing pipelines for the infinity from my data that we were collecting, this was I started writing that code, I guess, in 2015, 2016, and it took a long time to write it, but the kind of core infrastructure was there pretty early on. And around that same time, initiatives for bids were being established, and Russ Poldrick was doing all this brilliant work to set up mm-hmm. uh, pipelines that would allow us to kind of systematize and automatize our fMRI in order to be compatible and interchangeable and very easily uh, approachable for um, new people coming into the field. And so I was growing my pipeline kind of at the same time that things like fMRI prep were launching and, and similar ideas before it. But while I did invest a lot of effort to kind of create this infrastructure for infants, I was still kind of looking over the hedges to see how that project was doing. And ultimately what turned out to be the case is that due to the kind of nuances of the fMRI that research that we're doing, in particular the anatomical scans that we were collecting, it made it really hard for us to port over the the methods that were typically used for adults and apply them to infants. And what we found is that they just wouldn't work out of the box. And to the extent that they would uh, require kind of fine tuning, it kind of defeats the point of, of using these kind of automated systems, or at least maybe it, it reduces the impact of using these automated systems. So even today, for instance, if all of the fMRI data, uh, awake infant fMRI data that we've published is all publicly available, anyone can access both the raw data and pre-processed data that you've used to kind of make the figures in the paper. Mm-hmm. If you plug in that raw data into Nye uh, Babies, which is an uh, infant-specific pre-processing pipeline, or into fMRI prep, which is an adult, uh, brilliant fMRI uh, processing pipeline, you won't get reasonable results out almost always due to the alignment of anatomical function. And mm-hmm. so that makes it challenging for us to uh, suggest that you should use, uh, that That makes it challenging for us to uh, think about how uh, these pipelines work. For our sanity, the way that we've approached it is to make one pipeline for all of our studies and mm-hmm. only vary very small parameters that have extremely good reason for, for varying uh, within that space just to (laughs) reduce the kind of degrees of experimental freedom that we have while doing this work. So it doesn't solve the problem that you're posing of kind of like, how do we compare across labs? But at least within lab, what it tells us is that uh, we're not kind of messing with experimental degrees of freedom uh, in terms of getting, juicing, juicing our analysis in order to get a specific kind of result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, actually, um, Dr. Russ Poldrag came on the show a few months ago, and then he was talking about this specific issue as well. Um, I I believe he mentioned that even with different labs using different programming languages could potentially lead to uh, 
results and different results and analyses. So I think this is a topic that's worth bringing up in the field. And then we should all contribute to this open framework. Yeah. And uh, I mean, just to stand a little bit on a soapbox, I think it's really easy for us as scientists to do this. And I, beyond it being easy, I think we should feel the uh, the need to do this. Yeah. Uh, in particular, we should, as a default, but like this should be no questions asked. You should be sharing your data publicly once you've published published the the data. Uh, sorry, once you've published a, a piece of scientific work based on on that data. And mm-hmm. you should also make the code that you use to to make that at least the figures in the publication public as well. That latter one is one that people are particularly averse to. They don't like sharing their code because they're worried about the anxiety of other people criticizing it or otherwise feel kind of embarrassed by it. Um, I understand that uh, as someone that's put a lot of code out there. I, I too share that kind of anxiety. Uh, but the alternative is that you wrote code that no one ever sees and no one ever has the ability to interrogate. And I think science is significantly worse if that's the case. I think that we should have norms where people uh, put out their their code just as much as their data. And I think that using a notebook-like framework, framework where you can recreate the figures from a paper using uh, data that's publicly available creates this really virtuous cycle in science that I think we should just expect by default. Yes. I 100% agree. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so I know you talked about the lab's future direction. Is there any specific topic or projects that you already have in mind that you're about to do in the near future? Yeah, so I'm in this very odd position, and I think it's quite unique for people on your podcast, where I'm very new. So I I started at Stanford on January 1st, so just a little over a month ago. I'm currently recruiting uh, to try and get my uh, members into my my research group. And perhaps more than most research, I, I, I researchers, I'm hoping that the projects in which I'll be pursuing are very student driven. And so the, the interest of the members of my lab are going to be uh, what manifests uh, in terms of our research program. There'll be guidance. I plan to I, I, I plan to tell them which ideas I think are better than others, and I generally want them to stay in a certain scope so that uh, we can say that we're tackling questions about, uh, for instance, attention, learning, perception, memory. However, those are very broad topics, and I think that we should pursue them broadly. And I think our research program will benefit from that. So it's hard for me to say kind of like which ideas and which studies we're going to implement. However, I do have some that I'm I'm particularly interested in. So. For instance, one set of studies I'm interested in look at the nature of control and how evidence of control emerges over the course of development. And uh, control in infancy, I think, can be decomposed into lots of different factors that are emerging Mm -hmm. at different time points. So, for instance, classic studies from Bruce Hood look at um, how infants acquire the ability to disengage from attractive visual stimuli. So there's this interesting phenomena that happens in a two-month-old, approximately two-month-old infant, where if you show them a kind of attractive toy or some form of uh, colorful stimulus, then their attention will be drawn to it. But then if you show them another equally attractive, appealing thing, they're going to have a hard time removing their fixation from the first item. This is called sticky fixations. They they persist in looking at the first item rather than the second. Whereas by about three months of age, infants can kind of reorient their attention. They're, they're easily um, able to reallocate their attention. So they they can, in other words, disengage. I'm interested in studying that developmental period as infants acquire the behavioral ability to disengage. What is happening in their control systems that give them that capacity to disengage? How does their brain change in order to support this behavior? And in particular, we can decouple or perhaps we can investigate the relationship between behavioral change and the cognitive systems that support this. So, for instance, is it the case that we can find evidence of these control-like disengagement systems neurally before we find evidence of them behaviorally or do those things kind of come online at the same time that's a interesting question that i'm mm-hmm. i'm generally interested in uh, pursuing that's one example of control there's many others so for instance other aspects of control are about inhibiting uh so for instance not looking at something that uh is uninteresting and how does the the brain support the inhibition of uninteresting information other questions are about for instance uh inhibiting a reflexive response. So for instance, when I flash something in your periphery, you might have a reflex that your attention will be drawn to it. 
However, over training, you could learn that if something flashes to your right, then that means something interesting is about to appear on your left. And over training, infants can learn that just as much as adults can learn that. Interested in understanding kind of how the control systems are engaged to kind of override that reflexive looking response that infants might have. That's that's a set of studies I'm interested in pursuing that will uncover the it will give us greater insight into the nature of control in infancy. I have dozens of studies about as, that I'm also interested in pursuing in cases of learning and memory as well as in perception and 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 uh, vision. Yeah, these are all interesting topics, and we'll stay tuned and hopefully.、Um, You come back on the show in the future and talk more about your research. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to kind of switch gear a little bit and talk about more of a growing up in science kind of topics. But before I switch,、um, I have one fun question for you,、um, and it's also kind of a big question. So you don't have to have an answer for this. But、um, what do you hope to achieve with your research? Yeah.、Uh, I have some. Grandiose and least grandiose ideas with my research.、Uh, the kind of grandiose idea is that I want to drastically change our understanding of infant, the infant mind, and particularly infant experience over the, the course of my research career. I want to more, better characterize what it is like to be an infant in the, the very real sense of saying the, this is the nature of an infant's day-to-day experience. And and time through、uh, and and their experience as they grow up and how that changes over the first few years of life. This Kind of question spans multiple levels that I'm I've been talking about. For instance, I'm interested in what perceptual features infants have access to. So, for instance, do they have the same kind of rich、uh, detail for、uh, information out there in the visual world? You can think about, for instance,、uh, when they see a face. Do they see a face as a holistic whole, like we as adults do, or do they、uh, instead see it as a jumble of parts? Another kind of question in perception that I'm interested in is like, what is the nature of their temporal processing? In particular, do they experience the same temporal precision in in their experience as we as adults do? I think there's really great work to suggest that they they don't. That actually the temporal precision with which they experience the world is lower than ours as adults. And what are the consequences of that? How does that affect their perception? Is、mm-hmm. something that I'm really interested in. But also when we ask questions about learning and memory. That's an integral part of our life that we are thinking about the past and also prospecting about the future. And I、mm-hmm. want to understand what capacities infants have for doing that in order to better characterize again what it's like to be an infant. Control is another very important part. Are infants just kind of on a roller coaster ride where they're just being whizzed through the world without、uh, their choice, or are they instead on bumper cars where they actually choose what steering? They have control of the steering wheel and actually can choose where to go. I think understanding these kinds of capacities that infants have will really more richly f-、uh, fill out our understanding of, of the infant mind. That's the kind of like high-level picture, the thing I, I, I hope to have achieved or have made progress on, rather, over the course of my career. And then lots of things before that are, are, are kind of are more looming questions to solve, kind of theoretical debates.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Like I said, we'll be looking forward to. Seeing your research published in the future. Okay, so now、um, let's switch to talking about more oh and more fun stories about your journey in research and science. So, is there any life or career stories that you like to share with the audience in particular?、Um, maybe you could share about some like a struggle or a doubt or even failures that you faced in the past in your journey. Yeah. So.、Um... People have now been listening to me speak for approximately 30 minutes, and、uh, they may be asking the question, "Where is my accent from?" So I'm from New Zealand,、uh, beautiful <laughs> country in the, the southern hemisphere,、uh, and I, I grew up uh, in a, a city in New Zealand called Christchurch, and with a loving family,、uh, but ultimately in a family that uh, that. Uh, Hadn't had anyone go to university before, at least to finish university before, and so、uh, that to me, I spent a bit of time、um, during my kind of high school years thinking that I'd be going to university, but then an experience really kind of uh, uh, caused me to question that for a period of time, which was in particular two experiences I should say. One was that I. During high school, I tried really, really hard. I was, I really tried hard to do well in high school, and I was good student. I, I don't mean to imply that I wasn't, but 
the amount of effort I put in compared to my peers in particular did not translate to academic success. And that was very disconcerting to me. It felt it made me feel stupid. I, I felt like I was just less intelligent than my peers. And that ultimately was very discouraging for me wanting to pursue university education where that seemingly is a very important feature. The other uh, thing that was quite um, uh, kind of discouraging for me was that uh, I saw in my life uh, several people who seemed to uh, be on uh, another level of intelligence to me that were just very clearly brilliant, uh, dropped out of university. And that was, again, very dissuading to me in, in the sense of like, why did I want to go to uh, this this place where I'd be delaying kind of my adulthood is one way to think about it. And ultimately, uh, going to this place where other people who ought to succeed, um, don't. Uh, and so it felt very kind of, uh, I felt very uncertain about, uh, my university kind of future. When I got there though, I, I loved it from basically day one. I absolutely loved university. I really, really enjoyed, um, the, the topics I was learning. I'd never kind of been exposed to psychology or the science before. I remember mm-hmm. our first class was about the the um, structure of a neuron, and I just loved it. I, I loved it in the sense that it was it felt concrete. It felt uh, there was something tangible about this ultimately very intangible notion of how is it that from flesh and matter arises consciousness and experience. And it mm-hmm. felt this very uh, exciting and uh, large space to pursue. Nonetheless, I was still in New Zealand and, uh, New Zealand schools are great. I really liked this, the education that I received, but it was still, uh, it, 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 I didn't see a future for it myself. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. A degree in, undergraduate degree in psychology, particularly at that time in, in 2009, didn't have the career prospects that it has now of say data science or something like it. It was very unclear what my future was. Um, and one of the really um, important things that happened to me early on in my undergraduate degree was that a professor took me aside after class one day and said, you could get into a great graduate school. In particular, she said, you could go to the United States to to do your graduate degree. And I had no concept. This was in no way on my radar that that could be a possibility. Yeah. I had, you know, I, I, I know about Ivy League schools from um TV, but I, I, I just never assumed that those places were a place for someone like me, uh, in the sense of, in particular, I didn't have any money. My family didn't have any money. I was on the equivalent of Pell Grant in New Zealand. Uh, and so the idea of going to one of these lauded but expensive schools was just out of the question. And I didn't realize until she told me that, you know, these are paid for and you, you don't actually have to spend money on them at the, at the stage of graduate school. And so that to me really like lit a fire under me that motivated me very strongly. I uh, actually, I, uh, from a very, like almost from that exact moment, almost every kind of day, at least I was thinking about how am I helping myself get to that goal of, of kind of doing my graduate degree at, at, at a, a U.S. school, and uh, it was very challenging. I, I, I spent three years kind of like uh, aiming for this goal, and ultimately, uh, when I achieved it, so um, I I was admitted into a PhD program at Princeton. Uh, that was it, it was this very surreal moment where I kind of like had three years of wish fulfillment fulfilled, where I'd, I'd yeah. spent three years dreaming about uh, about this moment. Uh, and, and I, and part of me was just kind of nagging in the back of my mind thinking, like, was it going to live up to my expectations? Was it going to be, um, as good as I had hoped? Because again, I, I kind of spent three years dedicated to this in many ways, sacrificing for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turned out to exceed my expectations in every possible way. I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Princeton, uh, and my first period of time in graduate school. Uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And so it it's I tell the story um just because I think it <laughs> it's 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 interesting to hear people's dreams come true. And yeah, I, I feel like often we as scientists that that is the life we live. Our dreams are coming true every day. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think we should kind of like lose sight of that as scientists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That's very heartwarming to hear that after three years your dream did come true. 
So um, what would be the advice that you want to give someone who's just starting out as a researcher, who's also in the stage where they're dreaming about going to graduate school and then they're trying to work really hard toward this goal? Um, what did you find that helped you to actually achieve this goal? Yeah, I, I have lots of advice for young scholars, and I'm happy to talk about different aspects of it. Um, for a person who's uh, maybe a year or two out from applying for graduate programs, what I'd really encourage you to do is to ask for help. Just ask some people <laughs> for help. And that the people you should ask uh, are as many as will listen, but in particular, the research advisors that you're working with, you should ask them for help about these are the programs I'm thinking of applying to. What do I need to do in order to be ready to uh, apply for those programs? Mm -hmm. And how can I like shape my application in order for me to to uh, be the most compelling candidate I can? And uh, you should also ask for peers or people who are, for instance, they were your peers about a year or two older than you and then went on to those stages. You should again ask them about. You should ask for help in terms of having them review your materials and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and thinking about how you're applying. But I also want to say that like a very disconcerting thing is happening in at least psychological uh, science and, and academic research and psychology, which is that there is an arms race going on, uh, where people are expected to come into a, a PhD program with the type of experience that even when I started my PhD program was expected of a person graduating as in the amount of experience, the amount of publications is just ballooning at a, at such a rapid rate that it's, mm -hmm. it's just somewhat yeah. untenable. Yeah. I, I, I should say that like people can still get into graduate programs if they don't have any evidence of publications. That's true both uh, kind of recently as well as true generally, but mm -hmm. it's a scary and disconcerting, a disconcerting fact. And people who ought to, ought to in whatever way that means uh get into these programs aren't successful for whatever reason there are dozens of reasons why but many of them are, are unfortunate and so i think that uh having these conversations with people where you're talking about your prospects is really important for kind of like being honest about your 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 chances but also you need to be aware that like this doesn't have to be the only thing that you're going for because this shouldn't be the only thing you're going for because for unfortunate reasons, it, it might not work out. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought this up because um, I think a lot of people are realizing the same issue and I've seen a lot of debate on Twitter about this issue as well. So it's really validating and encouraging to hear a professor uh, acknowledge that this issue does exist in the field and that it is not the case that people should have this mindset of, oh, I need a certain number of publications before I can get into a program because it's really a stressful process. And yeah. a lot of people who don't have the resources or opportunities to be able to publish a paper, they're usually being discouraged to apply to uh, prestigious programs um, yeah. that they're missing out on opportunities. So thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Okay. So um, my next question is, so I think needless to say, I, I think our audience would agree too that you are a very creative person. You have very creative ideas. So I'm wondering um, in your experience, what has helped you to develop this creative mindset and coming up with these ideas? Yeah, I guess uh, one thing that jumps to mind is is something that really drives ideas in me is a kind of middle ground in terms of familiarity of exposures and new ideas. So if I'm exposed to ideas that I'm intimately familiar with, as in I'm reading papers and reviewing papers uh, by on topics that I understand very, very well, I don't find that that leads to very many ideas. And the same thing is true if I go to a talk on a topic that I just have no kind of foundation and no understanding mm -hmm. of I find it really hard to again find that that uh, creates some sort of ideas in my mind what I find is being exposed to things that are re uh, regularly being exposed to things that are just outside of my comfort zone I'm not I don't know a lot about the topic but mm -hmm. I know enough that I can kind of understand most of what's being discussed for me allows me to think of kind of uh, creative ideas and make interesting connections that I wouldn't make otherwise 
I think that uh, it can be um, seen as a, a, a kind of a negative to uh, mind wander during these talks. And obviously speakers don't always want you, want you to be engaged the whole time. But in terms of you developing ideas and actually getting something very valuable out of a talk, I think it can be helpful for you if you do get an idea during a talk to actually let it simmer in your mind, even if it means you're kind of lo losing uh, the plot of what's going on in the moment, because I think ultimately that can lead to some interesting thought pattern for you, at least uh, mm -hmm. during the talk. Um, I also think I, I encourage reading of, of um, nonfiction, uh, often popular press books. I found mm -hmm. them in particular during my um, undergrad before I started graduate school, incredibly generative for ideas that I'll be reading books by luminaries in the field. And I found those incredibly uh, nurturing for for kind of my ideas. Finally, uh, one thing that I, I've just learned that not many people do is that they actually not many people write down their ideas. I, I find this very curious and uh, that I've, I've run into a lot of people uh, who don't seem to do this. But I have documents that just list my ideas in, in loose categories, and I come back to them often when I need to think of or or discuss ideas that pertain to a, a topic. And it would be a tragedy if you have a brilliant idea and you don't record that in any way that's accessible to you in the future. So just make sure that you develop a system for yourself that uh, allows you to kind of like store these ideas you have. It may be the case that like, the idea will make you cringe when you look back at a, at a earlier, uh, at a later time. So for instance, I had a notebook from my first year of undergrad where I'd write ridiculous ideas about studies that would just be impossible to run or had no reasonable uh, conclusions that could be drawn. But there's other studies that you might come back to and realize actually there's a nugget of wisdom in there that, that could be very useful to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like writing it on a physical notebook with a pen? helps is <laughs> better than uh, writing a digital note on your laptop? I think different people have different uh, types of formats that they find the, the best for generating ideas. For my one is is actually making uh, slides in Keynote. Oh. Uh, making slides of the experiments, uh, experimental design is what for me uh, allows me to flesh out ideas most clearly, think about confounds of ideas uh, clearly, and also ultimately store it long term. That for me is is the the best method of, of encoding. However, you could I could instead draw diagrams. It's just that I'm better on Keynote than I am with a pencil. <laughs> That's interesting. All right, so I think we're almost at time, and then I want to end this episode with another big but fun question for you. So, what is or was the most challenging and rewarding aspect of doing science for you? It doesn't have to be just from uh, doing infant research, it could be from anything science related, just in your journey. Yeah, I a lot of things jump to mind uh, with that question. I guess one really important thing uh, that you should learn about yourself as a scientist is whether you enjoy the day to day of, mm -hmm. of science um, and the day to day for depending on which aspect of science you're involved in. For me, it was data collection and and coding. Turns out I love data collection in particular. I love collecting infant fMRI data. It's a joy to work with infants. In our case, we got to see about 50 or 100, no, about 100 infants grow up from age uh, three months to almost 24 months in, in some cases. Mm -hmm. And we get to check in on them uh, multiple times over those, that, that two year span. That to me was incredibly like rewarding and, and fun to see infants grow and change and get personalities and everything else. And then also just interacting with infants is again a joy but also I, I love coding and i i really enjoy writing a piece of code it's the kind of thing that uh i will stay up too late at night because i i just need to get that code finished get it working and it's just something mm -hmm. I, I find very, very enjoyable so it's, it's hard for me to say uh the most enjoyable uh experience i've had because what i find most enjoyable as a scientist is actually these very small things that i get to experience mm -hmm. very often um, and I think if you can find yourself in that space, that's going to make it easier to kind of smooth over the bumps that come with academia. So if you enjoy your day to day, it makes it easier to ignore the kind of that rejection that right. you got or the grant that didn't get funded. That kind of thing. Yeah. The little things make a difference in our life. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Terry. OK, so I think we are at time now. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And it was a really fun conversation. I think our audience will enjoy it, too. 
Um, and I look forward to hearing more about your research in the near future. Yeah, thank you so much, Dollar. I really enjoyed this chat. Thank you so much for tuning in. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. You can click on the link to survey attached in the show description or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms so that more people can find us. Thank you so much.